Is the global economy equipped to meet the existential threat of climate change? Are poverty and inequality the product or cause of poor governance? Welcome to Connections, the Arab Studies Institute interview program on current events, policy questions, and new ideas. I'm Mu'ain Rabbani, and for this episode, we're delighted to be speaking with leading economist Jeffrey Sachs, who joins us from New York. Jeffrey Sachs is university professor and director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, where he directed the Earth Institute from 2002 until 2016. He is also president of the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network and has been advisor to three UN secretaries general. He has authored numerous bestsellers. His most recent book is The Ages of Globalization, Geography, Technology, and Institutions. Sachs was twice named as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential World Leaders and was ranked by The Economist among the top three most influential living economists. Professor Sachs, it's a real pleasure to have you on the program. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. I'd like to begin on the topic of climate change, which is very much in the news today, given the recent IPCC report. The science is all too clear and unfortunately unfolding all around us. The economics of preventing climate catastrophe seem to be much more contentious. What are the measures, the transformations that need to be implemented? What is the time frame available for achieving these? And do you think it's realistic to expect these changes to actually occur? Today's report by the IPCC is indeed grim. Uh, it is the uh, working group one physical science report. And it says uh, we are warmer now than at any time in the past 2000 years. And if you look at averages over long stretches, any time in the last 100,000 years, it's uh, shocking the situation uh, on the planet. And we see that everywhere. Now, mega forest fires, a massive number of storms uh, in in the Atlantic, floods all over the world, uh, heat waves uh, that are unimaginable, northern Canada uh, hitting 50 degrees C, uh, Siberia hitting uh, record temperatures, uh, the warmest or the second warmest temperatures on most of the continents uh, in the world. It's, it's shocking uh, what is happening. Now, what to do? Well, the, the <coughs> excuse me, the background uh, of this is that uh, we became a modern world economy through fossil fuels, uh, and uh, the Middle East knows that well. It's the world uh, center of hydrocarbons. Uh, with the invention of the steam engine uh, two centuries ago, plus uh, uh, another 25 or so years, uh, and then the inventions of the internal combustion engine and the gas turbine, uh, we built a, a world economy based on coal, oil, and gas. And it was discovered about 125 years ago uh, that sure enough, by burning all that coal, oil, and gas, uh, humanity was raising the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And that behaved like a blanket or a trap of heat that would warm the planet. That was actually first understood around 1896. Since then, we've been arguing about it. Uh, the fossil fuel producing countries like the income that they get from that. I live in a petro country, the United States. Uh, it has a huge oil, gas, and coal sector. 
We had a president, a, a nut in my view, but a president who, <coughs> uh, President Trump, who even until leaving office uh, on January 20th this year was actively promoting more fossil fuels. He, he was a psychopath in my view, but uh, I'll put that aside just to say that uh, we did not get on a common global determination that we have to end the dependence on fossil fuels. Now, for a while, it seemed, how the heck could we do that? We depend on fossil fuels for a modern uh, world economy. But the fact of the matter is, over the last 25 years, and with huge advances in the last decade, uh, we've been able to, or I sh shouldn't say we were the, uh, we are the lucky heirs uh, uh, of that, but the scientists and technologists have been able to come up with alternatives. Uh, most importantly, sunshine uh, through photovoltaics, uh, wind turbines, uh, electric vehicles that run on the electricity from wind and solar rather than on uh, the oil uh, from uh, petroleum, uh, the gasoline from petroleum, and so forth. So we now have a path to decarbonize the world economy. Uh, this doesn't sit well with major oil producers, whether it's companies like ExxonMobil and Chevron or countries uh, in the Middle East or <coughs> many of the US states or Russia or Indonesia or Australia that have a large, large revenue from fossil fuels. But the fact of the matter is we need to do this urgently if we're going to have any kind of safety on the planet. And that's true in these countries themselves. Think of the Middle East getting hotter and drier. Think of the incredible storms, floods, uh, droughts in the United States. Uh, think of Siberia hitting more than 100 degrees Fahrenheit temperature uh, and all of the chaos that are, is being created by that. Think of the feedback mechanisms uh, as uh, the world gets hotter, the planet burns more. That releases even more CO2 into the atmosphere. And we're seeing those adverse feedback loops all over the place in ocean currents, in release of methane from the permafrost, in forest fires, in release of carbon from rainforests, such as the Amazon. All in all, this is shocking. All in all, we need to decarbonize. All in all, we're going to meet as a world at COP26. That means Conference of the Parties 26th edition in Glasgow at the beginning of November. And every government, every region better be on one message, which is, yes, we will decarbonize no later than mid-century. We will help each other to do it. We will share technologies. We will get on the case and we will be fair about it, sharing burdens so that everybody can benefit from this and not have parts of populations or regions or countries left woefully behind by this transformation. And is that something you expect to emerge from the COP26 conference? Oh, you never know with the politics, uh, but it looks better than a year ago. Uh, again, the U.S. escaped by uh, the slenderest of margins from 
a, a dangerous authoritarian psychopath who still lurks uh, in the shadows in the United States, uh, or even not in the shadows. But we have a president that's committed to climate safety and to decency. He called 40 world leaders by Zoom, which I heartily uh, recommend for world leaders. Talk to each other. Get on Zoom. Uh, you don't have to fly around in uh, huge uh, entourages. Uh, just get on your Zoom and, and get to know each other. But uh, President Biden brought together 40 world leaders in April, and there was a, really a move towards consensus. Now with this new IPCC report, uh, God help us if, uh, if, if the politicians can't figure this out. Uh, and we, we need to help them figure it out. Um, turning now to a related subject, during the past 18 months, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has laid bare in stark detail the human costs of inequality. In the United States and other countries, essential workers were revealed to be the most expendable and became ill and died in disproportionately high numbers. Currently, we're dealing with gross vaccine disparity, where, for example, 60% of adults in the European Union have been fully vaccinated, whereas for Africa, the figure is only 1.6%. Appeals to self-interest in terms of protecting wealthy nations from new variants emerging elsewhere have clearly failed. What are the main structural changes required to address these types of inequality and their gro growing human costs? And how can these be achieved? I think one thing we've learned uh, and every region should take heart is uh, promote science and technology locally. Do not depend on others. Uh, because what we have right now is a few places that produce vaccines and the rest of the world begging for them. <clears throat> and that uh, inequality is profound. And it's part of the story of why new variants are arising. After all, Delta, which is setting all of us reeling, uh, probably emerged uh, in India. Uh, we don't even know for sure, but it spread to the whole world. And it really proves the adage, which is sometimes taken as a cliche, you alluded to it, but it's actually true, which is nobody's safe until everybody is safe. And right now, unless we get comprehensive global control over COVID, we're all vulnerable to the continuing emergence of variants that will evade the vaccines that we have. Now, most of the world does not produce vaccines. And so most of the world is waiting. And maybe they're going to get some. But what has been dismaying to me is that the rich countries have by and large treated this issue once the vaccine existed as a so-called market-based issue. Who can buy it? Who can make the contracts? Leaving the companies in charge. Whereas this is no time for a pseudo market. I call it a pseudo market because it's not really a market. There are only a few producers. They gain their intellectual knowledge, their IP, by government financing, especially from the National Institutes of Health. Uh, there's no way that Pfizer, BioNTech, or Moderna would have come up with an mRNA vaccine but for US government financing. And then these companies were given uh, 
20-year monopoly privileges by their patents, which actually are co-owned by the U.S. government. So uh, the U.S. government should march in there and tell these companies what to do. But U.S. politics is, as I think everyone understands, is really twisted and corrupt. Uh, and so money changes hands so much, the corporations run the show to a large extent. And the result is that these companies who are where they are by virtue of public finance and in the midst of a global emergency are out trying to maximize their shareholder value rather than stopping this pandemic. So we have a category confusion uh, that is massive. What we really need is for the US, Europe, that is the EU, uh, UK, Russia, China, uh, and uh, India to put top technocrats around the table together with WHO, with the UN, to plot a month-by-month -month campaign for global immunization coverage that is fair, financed, and affordable. It wouldn't be hard if we understood that this challenge was a, uh, an organizational and an inclusive challenge, not a market-based process. But again, in the United States, the companies run the show and the politicians can't really even imagine it another way. And, and is that applicable more generally to economic inequality if we take a broader view of it than just um, the, the current pandemic? Well, I think there are a couple things going on in inequality that should be understood. One is that, as we've understood for a long time, when technology changes, that creates winners and losers. Uh, in the period from roughly 1950 onward, the major change of technology was to favor advanced human skills over uh, raw labor. And that led to a massive uh, change of income distribution. People with advanced education had rising incomes and people with basic education had stagnant or falling incomes. So society divided between the educational haves and the educational have-nots. Now we're in another fundamental technological transformation that is uh, around digital technology because we become a digital society gradually up until 2020 and then we're thrown into it since then. Who are the winners now? The ones who own the digital platforms. So Mr. Bezos has $200 billion of personal wealth. That's a lot of money, by the way. Uh, and all of the top wealth holders are tech uh, people uh, from Google or Microsoft uh, or others. And so the result is they've become phenomenally richer during the period since the pandemic started. If you can imagine, the billionaires have had the biggest gain of wealth in history during this pandemic crisis, whereas hundreds of millions of people have seen the, the, the floor fall out from under them. That's another change. But then the way that 
taxes generally work in the world is the rich don't pay them. The super rich pay them even less. Uh, if they get capital gains, uh, that means they own companies whose market value goes up. Generally in the US system, you don't pay a penny on that kind of income until you sell the shares, but you have no reason to sell the shares because you don't wanna pay taxes. And, and so uh, the, the gazillionaires have had soaring wealth to more than $100 billion paying almost no taxes. And then so much of society struggles to put food on the table. And the Food and Agriculture Organization and its partners, UNICEF and Food and Agriculture Organization World Food Program issued a report also this week on food insecurity showing that hunger is rising in the United States, by the way, in the richest countries at the same time that the gazillionaire wealth is soaring. So we have structural issues that are deep. Now, what do you do about it? What we learned from the industrialization process and what we should have learned from the skill intensification process and what we should understand in the digital process is that the only way to respond to these inequalities is not to sit back and say, well, that's the market. That's not an allocator of human value, of dignity, of decency, of fairness, or of stability. What we need to do is have the government taxing the super rich, taxing large profits, and using that to make sure that every single person has access to healthcare, education, and other basic needs. Sometimes that ethos is called social democracy. I regard it as the most successful political orientation in modern history. But it says you don't just sit back and let the so-called market forces or the technological forces determine who lives and who dies, who's rich and who's poor, you have a government which makes sure that there is a society that operates as a society, that everybody is entitled to dignity and to basic economic needs. It's pretty straightforward. Actually, the UN member states agreed to it in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but uh, they don't remember that they agreed to it necessarily, even though that goes back to 1948. So, but if, if we now look at this, perhaps on a more global scale, um, many development economists identify mismanagement and corruption as important causes of poverty. But in your 2005 book, The End of Poverty, you wrote, and I'm quoting, Africa's governance is poor because Africa is poor, end quote. Others would add that Africa's governance and people are poor because they've been subject to decades of structural adjustment and austerity by international financial institutions, while donor governments extract considerably more in interest payments and cheap resources than they provide in aid. Can the system be reformed or is a more fundamental overhaul required? Well, I, I sometimes say that there is widespread corruption, not only in Washington, uh, but also elsewhere. Uh, you know, the narrative uh, coming from rich countries is to point to poor people and say, oh, you're so corrupt. 
But look at the U.S. political system. It's a money machine uh, where a, an election like the 2020 federal election in the United States had something like $14 billion changing hands, rich people and companies giving money to their favorite candidates who they count on to vote tax cuts for them or special privileges or deregulation. That's a corrupt political system uh, as far as I'm concerned. A lot of money sloshing around to affect outcomes and billions of dollars of lobbying. What's all that about? Why spend billions unless you're able to buy your votes? Uh, write and, your legislation. And write your legislation. We had a, uh, a scam operation uh, recently where uh, a, uh, an ExxonMobil lobbyist was scammed into thinking that he was speaking with a headhunter looking uh, for a job for him. And so he just spilled the beans. Oh, we go to this senator. This one's the kingmaker. We do this. We do that. Uh, we, we lie about our real policies. So he explained everything about what the lobbyists do. That's a corrupt political system. So a big part of our problem is that the, the rich operate with impunity in a lot of places. The United States has not had a decent political order for quite a long time. It, it disintegrated into uh, something shocking during uh, Trump, uh, who brought psychopathy uh, to the top, as well as this kind of venality. Uh, and we're struggling to get out of, uh, out of this right now. Another thing that uh, you might have mentioned uh, in this analysis is the role of the powerful world in the poorer world, not just through things like structural adjustment and so forth, but actually directly through war, geopolitics, uh, meddling interventions, and so on. The Middle East, uh, your region has been really for a hundred years since the Versailles Treaty, I won't call it a playground of uh, the UK, the US and other powers, because there's no nothing playful about it, but I would call it a meddling ground. Uh, how many wars were fought uh, for oil? Uh, how much uh, depredation uh, when uh, the US and the UK uh, uh, overthrew Mossadegh in 1953, uh, or uh, in when Iran. Uh, uh, in Iran, or uh, in uh, 1980, uh, when the U.S. funded Saddam uh, to uh, launch a war on Iran, uh, or the uh, two Gulf Wars that the United States uh, directly led and put troops on the ground, or the CIA operation uh, Timber Sycamore in Syria, which destabilized Syria. You know, this is a huge part of the story, after all, uh, this outside meddling. Uh, and when it comes from the United States, all I can say is there's so much ignorance in this country, so much lack of knowledge of basic history, geography, uh, of course, knowledge of Islam. It's pretty fundamental the amount of ignorance. So when you have an extremely powerful country, a meddling country, uh, a country that operates a secret army, the CIA, uh, and you compound all of that, you get a tremendous amount of destabilization. And most regions of the world, 
have experienced that over the decades. Central America, obviously, in the 1980s, Latin America, for a lot of history, where uh, the U.S. overthrew governments right and left, Southeast Asia, uh, Africa with its proxy wars, the Middle East with its proxy wars. You know, geopolitics is a big part of this story, and we desperately need a world uh, in which the UN Charter actually works, in which the UN uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights is the guiding moral principle. It's based on dignity for every human being and basic economic rights for every human being, uh, and some uh, peaceful investment in the future, because that's the key for real economic development is finance to invest in education and healthcare, in infrastructure, in zero carbon energy and all the rest. So just to say, you know, it's a, we're a rich world, we're a technologically sophisticated world, but we're not a very fair world, very honest world or very transparent world. And if we actually abided by basic principles that we, you know, we, we kind of, uh, uh, claim that we live by these principles, if we actually live by them, we'd make huge advances on the planet. So you've laid out the aspirations and, and you've identified the mechanisms that could be used to achieve those aspirations. But I, I, I think for many people listening, the question would remain, um, how would the, how would theory, so to speak, be translated into reality, given um, the self-interest and, uh, um, you know, and, and vested interests and so on that you've also identified? How, how would we translate these lofty objectives into realistic prospects? Well, I, I, could, I could tell you one thing that uh, Plato, uh, the, the great philosopher, asked the same question. Uh, this uh, past summer, I, uh, since I'm working on uh, Plato and Aristotle and their relevance for today's world, we, uh, I visited uh, Syracuse uh, in Sicily, uh, and uh, where you have the ancient uh, Greek ruins and the Roman structures uh, up till uh, the modern day. It, it turns out Plato came three times as a political advisor to Syracuse, failed all three times <laughs> when it was sent home packing all three times. And so he must have asked the same question. How do we turn good philosophy into practice? It's not a new question. Uh, it goes back uh, uh, to uh, roughly 350 BC, uh, okay. BCE. So, uh, but I would say the following, you know, uh, we need reports like today's IPCC report which say, this is our knowledge, this is our science. Uh, we need the report like the state of uh, food security and nutrition in the world that I referred to by FAO. We have a UN charter. We have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We have the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. We have the Paris Climate Agreement. Interesting, you know, uh, it, we're, we're not far on a rhetorical level from having a direction. 
none of our systems works very well right now because we also had an insurrection uh, in the United States on January 6th. We have a Republican Party that is dead set as its central mission never to uh, vote uh, one penny of increased taxes from rich people. That seems to be the only consistent philosophy of that party that I can discover. We have, uh, of course, lots of people who are, uh, by their own misfortune, not well educated. And so these issues uh, are not well understood. We have venality in uh, the media, Rupert Murdoch is uh, venal character number one, in my view, because uh, he runs a whole global network dedicated to lies, uh, whether it's Fox News or the Wall Street Journal or other of his uh, press. Uh, he lies about climate change, lies about so many things. So it's a tough question you're asking. And it's, it's not a question that uh, we've ever found a reliable answer to for 2000 years, uh, basically, which is how do you make governments that are responsible? It happens though. It happens on occasion. It happens when there's enough shock that my God, we better do this or we are really toast. And this time we are gonna be toast, literally because the planet is gonna burn up unless we get straight on what we're doing. Do we want mega forest fires all over the world because of uh, the human-induced climate change? So my only answer to your question is knowledge, knowledge, knowledge that I hope turns into wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. Uh, that means knowledge plus some ethics uh, that uh, will give us th the way forward. And you've, you've spoken um, quite a bit about inequality uh, today. So I'd, I'd like to return to that subject um, because it has become an increasingly prominent theme, not just globally, but also, as you pointed out, um, within wealthy countries, particularly the United States. And so my question is whether it's realistic to expect governments that don't address inequality within their own societies to contribute constructively to addressing global inequality and poverty? The answer is no. Uh, it is not realistic to expect that. Uh, the countries that are the most generous internationally are the most generous within society. So <clears throat> the countries that give the most in development aid, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Finland, and Lo and behold, those are the countries that also are the most equal in their internal income distribution. It's so an two ethos. sides of the same coin, in a manner of speaking. It's an ethos. The United yeah. States ethos is I'm going to get whatever I can in any way that I can. Trump, of course, played that to the limit because his view was you, you should lie and cheat and steal because truth telling is for losers. Uh, you know, they're killers and, and uh, they're losers and he wanted to be a killer. <laughs> so, and he ended up with hundreds of thousands of dead from COVID because he couldn't say an honest line. Um, so ethos is extremely important. The U.S. ethos is the so-called libertarian ethos. You're on your own. 
and we leave the poor in the US to suffer and we leave the poor in the world to suffer. Now, is this fate and permanent? My answer is no. Even within United States society, we have an ideological battle underway. And today, this very day, the Democrats in the Congress have put forward a $3.5 trillion plan to fight poverty in the United States and to fight climate change. And it will probably pass in some form on a straight party vote because uh, the Democrats, uh, it's 50-50 and then the tie-breaking votes, the vice president and Democrats. So I, I think this will pass in the weeks ahead. And it shows that within the US society, we're in a, in a battle over the future. Do we want a decent, fair future or is it a free-for-all? And I think uh, it's a close call, but it's one that we have to, uh, we have to fight to, to make right. Uh, and uh, the fighting here is to stop fighting. The fighting by, when I say fighting, I mean fighting for values, not fighting each other. Uh, we need to embrace the idea that the world is rich enough for everybody, so share. Now, one more thing that I would add is we've never had good sharing across national borders. Politicians are elected locally. The UN, it's a wonderful institution. I've spent a lot of my professional life uh, working for and uh, trying to help the UN, but it doesn't command finances. Uh, it's a political normative institution, not a financial institution. And uh, we need to turn the resource flows in the direction of the values. So it can be done. We need to do it. Most people in the world want to do it. The rich and the powerful, many act with impunity, but we need to end the impunity and upgrade the responsibility. Professor Jeffrey Sachs, thank you very much uh, for joining us and sharing your insights uh, with Connections. Absolutely pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you.